Well, it's December 23rd. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. And uh, chances are that many of us have received at least a few holiday cards. Those lovely photos sometimes paired with summaries of adventures and activities from the year. Although less and less the letters, more just the picture. And those photos, let's face it, I do it too. They are carefully selected, right? We are trying to find the picture where everyone looks pretty good as we uh, present our best face forward uh, to our friends and family. A few years ago, I received one of these photo cards from a, a good friend of mine, and it was a great picture. It was her and her husband and her three daughters. And it wasn't until, um, much, she'd been a little out of touch, and it wasn't until a few months later that I learned that uh, she had been separated for a while, and that that picture was actually a photoshopped picture. She had taken the year prior's greeting, um, and she had changed the colors of the sweaters, the matching sweaters, to a different color. She had photoshopped in a couple Santa hats and sent that off. And I get it. The separation was too fresh and too painful, and she wanted to maintain uh, that illusion of an intact family for just a little while longer. She wasn't ready to tell the whole story. This Advent, we've been taking a closer look at the mothers of Jesus brought forward in Matthew's genealogy, and their difficult stories make it very clear that God does not Photoshop family. There are five women named in the genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, which is already unusual because customarily we don't see women in a biblical genealogy. But also, it's different because of who is absent. The classic matriarchs of the faith are not there. Uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. And it's, it's as if from the get-go, Matthew is trying to say, pay attention. Something new is afoot. I'm about to introduce you to a new story. And today we are going to focus on Bathsheba. Uh, maybe some of us are familiar with her story. It, it is PG-13. <laughs> I, I have worked to make it PG-10, um, but I just wanted to inform parents and grandparents who have kids in the service today. Bathsheba is referred to uh, in Matthew's genealogy in this way. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. To say this points to a sad and ugly story. Bathsheba is unlike Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. First, because her actual name is not in the text. I think that's very intentional. But secondly, because she isn't a hero, per se. She's not given agency or autonomy. She says almost nothing. She is acted upon, and her tale is one of violence, assault, abuse of power, and death. And all through this, we don't get insight into her inner dialogue or feelings. 
We know from the text, though, that she's a wife and a daughter, a victim, and a survivor. And she is beautiful. And great gaps in the story have captured our imagination and given plenty of room for interpretation throughout history. Bathsheba is depicted quite often in art, film, literature, even popular song. And the renderings are varied, but they seem to only agree on one thing. She's a woman of great beauty. And the spectrum of interpretation of her story goes from helpless victim to plotting seductress. The latter of which, with modern eyes, thankfully, we can dismiss. So let's start with some backstory on Bathsheba. While David's army is out in battle, David is back at home. And from his palace roof, he sees a woman bathing. And he finds out, he inquires about her, finds out she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now this family would be known to David, at least Uriah, because Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men, an elite group of loyal soldiers. David had fought on the field with Uriah. And David sends for Bathsheba, and she obeys his summons uh, rather than risk her life, really, by disobeying the king. And what happens next today we would call a power rape, where one person cannot say no because there is a great disparity of power. Afterward, David sends her back to her house, and Bathsheba later discovers that she is pregnant. She appeals to the king by sending a message, I am pregnant, and these are her only words in the story. She holds him responsible, and her pregnancy in that culture puts her in a very vulnerable place. And the power to act before, for her or against her is in David's hands. And then David initiates a cover-up. And he attempts to manipulate Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to create a scenario where the child can be attributed to Uriah. So David this time summons Uriah to Jerusalem from the battlefield. But when Uriah acts in solidarity with his fellow soldiers by not uh, visiting his wife during his leave, David arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. It's on page 248 in your pew Bibles. And I'm going to go ahead and read the story for you today. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. 
he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall not lie, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For what you did, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard story. Give us eyes to see and ears to listen and hearts that are receptive to your word in our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This is a hard story. If you have ever felt trapped or vulnerable, if you feel guilty for having played the aggressor or levered, leveraged your position, your authority for the ill of others, you'll find yourself in this story. This story, almost like any other, almost unlike any other, captures the consequence of sin. There is deep mourning and lament, and even though we don't have recorded words of Bathsheba, we know the wailing must have flowed from her. 
She has lost her home, her honor, her husband, and will lose a child. And she's become a part of David's harem. What Bathsheba endures is horrible. Her grief and her cries reverberate in us because we live in a broken world. We see brokenness all around us. We dwell in it. We recall to mind personal circumstances where we have been powerless or have had little agency. Or we might know of someone close to us who has been abused, mistreated. Statistically, we know that many in this room have been victims, victims of unwanted sexual advances, both male and female. And most of these statistics are unreported. Some of us have voiced those laments. Many have not. Some have been vindicated. Many have not. Just this week, uh, the Attorney General of Illinois issued a report. Um, over 500 cases of sexual abuse by clergy in the Catholic Church just in Illinois where the abusers have yet to be publicly identified. Can you imagine? You've come forth and you're just still waiting, waiting for justice. Bathsheba's story is ancient and yet it's told over and over again today, worldwide. The abuse of power, the labeling of someone as a temptress, blame avoided or misplaced, voicelessness caused by the inability to speak or the fear of speaking out. Often victims have to make a choice. Do I say something potentially ruining the life I know or do I choose to be silent and perhaps die slowly from within as I carry grief and pain? And there are also those who have committed abuse. Perpetrators who have had the courage to admit their guilt and make amends and be agents of healing. But we know that many don't. The instinct is to cover up, like David, to deny. And some actually see no wrong in what they do. Maybe there are other ways that you have experienced unchecked power in your life. Maybe you have a boss who continually berates you and other employees, or a serial bully at school. Maybe your heart laments over a painful loss, such as the loss of a spouse, of a pregnancy, of a child. a healthy marriage, or a loved one loss to addiction. In the Presbyterian Church, uh, the pastors, called teaching elders, go through a process determining their readiness for ministry. And it culminates in a formal oral exam before all your peers where your beliefs about God are evaluated. 
And it was during my exam 20 years ago that a pastor reading from my statement of faith describing that Jesus suffered the depths of human pain stood up and asked me this question. How can a male savior relate to the sufferings of women? Although I can't quite remember the answer I gave, (laughs) I think a lot about that question. How does Jesus relate to the sufferings of women? Or more broadly, how can any of us relate to the sufferings of another? Is there a point where there can be no bridge because we don't really know the experience of another? Do we have to have that precise experience to know another's pain? These are really important questions, and the answers can either lead us down a path of alienation and isolation, or we can find some measure of healing. How does God relate to our suffering? And here is where this crazy, awful story of Bathsheba and David and Uriah and others who were impacted shine a light on us and God. We see that God sends. God sends Nathan to David to confront and judge. And Nathan in this story is like the Holy Spirit. And he takes a risk himself in confronting the king because you did not do that. Kings were not held accountable for their abuses. They had absolute authority. But this king, David, was chosen by God and he has to be accountable to God. And so Nathan, as God's ambassador, comes forward and he lets David know that God is displeased that God has pronounced judgment. And David confesses his sin. And because David makes that confession, because he names it, God shows mercy to him. David won't die, although he acknowledges himself that he he deserves it. But we see that David is not free from the consequences of that sin. The sword will turn against his household, just as he turned a sword onto Uriah. His wives will be taken just as he is taken, and Bathsheba's baby will die. This is the hardest part to swallow. Why would God have this baby die? I don't have an answer, and I don't know if it's really helpful to speculate but you can imagine that the impact of this would compound Bathsheba's lament. The loss of a child is one of life's greatest offenses. But there's more to this story. The final word is not death, but life. And God often does this. We see this over and over again, working life right on the margins of death. The story goes on, and after the child dies, he does die. But David and Bathsheba conceive another son, Solomon. 
And Nathan, the prophet, comes along and gives him a second name, Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. And it is through this beloved son that Jesus ultimately descends. A new story unfolds for Bathsheba. She is an abused and marginalized woman, an outsider because she has married a Hittite, becomes the bearer of Solomon and thus the mother of a king. She stands right in the middle of the fulfillment of God's divine promise and she's part of a brand new story. It doesn't make up for and change the story that she has already lived but God propels her into a new story. Well, at this point, your head might be spinning. You might be troubled still by this hard text or something is stirring about your own story. And so where is the hope in Bathsheba's story for us? I think some of the answer lies when we revisit that parable that Nathan tells. So I'm going to reread the parable for you. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I don't know if you recall this, but David, his beginnings were out in the fields. He was a shepherd before he was a king. So this parable that Nathan tells gets his attention. And I, I'm guessing none of us are shepherds in this room. Um, A little bit of background on being a shepherd at this time. A shepherd is one who goes all out for his sheep. It is not just a profession. It is a lifestyle. You are bonded with your sheep. You are their constant companion. A shepherd would know the personalities of each of the sheep. He would give them nicknames. He would bring them into lush pastures so that they would be nourished he would take oil and, and put it on their nicks and wounds to heal them. And a good shepherd, when danger came, would run toward the danger and risk his life to save the life of his sheep. But this parable takes it further than that because suddenly it's not a flock, it's one. One little lamb, a precious you who has become part of a family, even sharing the cup and the bed of this poor man. 
deeply personal intimacy and tenderness towards this little lamb. And David gets it. He finally sees. And God sees Bathsheba as she is likened to this little ewe lamb. God is calling her out. She is not going unnoticed. God is calling out the wrongs against her and holding David accountable. God sees us, each one of us. God is the good shepherd, the shepherd that can care for us much better than any other human shepherd. The one who would lay down for his life for the sheep, abandon the 99, just to find the one, to find Bathsheba, to find David, to find us. God sees us. We're not abstract to God. God sees, and secondly, God hears. There is room in this story for lament. Our cries and our grief are heard. God never asks us to stuff our pain. And actually, there are places where we, as followers of God, need to continue to lament. Places where we see things that are not right or just. God certainly does. To let our tears flow for that which breaks our hearts. The deep groans are heard by God. Jesus was acquainted with grief. And finally, God steps in. And Bathsheba is a part of that grand entrance. And God steps into brokenness. A broken lineage. And he has and is changing the story. Doing a new thing. Jesus walks right into the mess, into that raw, unedited, non-photoshopped story, the mistakes, the injustice, the deceit, the power plays. Jesus shares the DNA of our human condition. So Jesus can relate to the sufferings of women Jesus can relate to the sufferings of all of us, the generations of pain and longing and weeping. God has been there, and God stands for all oppressed peoples. Mary's song notes this when she sings in Luke chapter 1. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Jesus meets those laments and absorbs them and heals them. And because Jesus steps into sin, there is forgiveness. For those of us who have used our power wrongly, who have brought suffering to someone else, that journey of repentance, it's claimed for us, but it's a lifelong journey. We are always in process. But when we speak that truth, about our faults, about our sin, and seek God's healing grace, God meets us and is there for us. And we're not alone, and God calls us into a community to learn and to help us 
to help one another grow as we continue to step toward a merciful God. So if today, if today you feel powerless or trapped or defined by your circumstances, know this moment that this is not your whole story and it is not the end of your story. Jesus sees our plight, hears our cries, and heals our lives. Today we're gonna have healing prayers in just a moment. And you are all invited to come to seek prayer, to seek healing. And maybe you can't even feel like you can talk about it in this moment. That's okay. Just trust and ask for prayer. And there's another invitation today, and it's for all of us. In this moment, in our broken world, be on the lookout. Look for others. See them. Hear them. And be an agent of healing wherever you find yourselves. Lord God, thank you that you see us. You hear us and you draw near. You are ever present and you are the one who can speak forgiveness over us and bring healing to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are the good shepherd who tends to us, who cares for us, who protects us, who loves us with an unrelenting love. Amen.